drop. everyone my name is christian Wynn, the director of storyport and you're listening to storyport presents voices of treeport music fest a weekly podcast that dives into the stories behind boise's festival of discovery treeport music fest brings in hundreds of artists from all over the globe every march but this march we were postponed until september of 2020 and now we are rescheduled until September of 21 because of this thing called a global pandemic. But hey, we're still here to tell you about all things Treefort. And today we've got a really cool episode. Our annual event, Scary Fort, was able to happen in a socially distanced, safe manner at a place called Kin in downtown Boise, a really great restaurant and bar, and uh, now a music venue as well. We had three storytellers telling very scary true crime stories, and also Malia Collins brings us some uh, true stories from her upbringing in Hawaii. So, along with Malia, we had Kay Lang and Emily Herbster, our friends from Big Tree Arts, great poets and writers and entertainers. We also have a really special guest on, um, Dr. Marlene Trump, who is the president of Boise State University and also a true crime and Victorian literature scholar, among other things. But uh, it was creepy and it was cool. It was a fun night. We had Sunblood Stories bringing some tunes and playing behind the storytellers. And they also played a full set that we're going to air at some point in time, point in time soon. But that said, enjoy the stories. We want to thank Ken. We want to thank the storytellers. We want to thank you. We hope you're doing well. Um, this happens to be election week when we're putting this thing out. So be safe, be smart, all that stuff. Take care. How's everybody doing tonight? Are you feeling good? Out here on Halloween at the beautiful Kin Lawn, uh, thank you so much for coming out. My name is Joe Davidson. I'm the assistant director of Storyfort, which is a part of the larger Treefort Music Fest. And uh, it feels really good to see all of you out there. With the whole pandemic thing happening, one of my first thoughts was, oh man, we're not going to be able to do Scary Fort. And Scary Fort's one of my favorite events of the year. And I was super depressed uh, for, you know, many reasons. But that was a big one. Uh, so we got a lot of thank yous to do that this is happening. First, I really want to thank Kin. Can you clap for Kin, please? Yeah. I like making people clap. It's kind of a, a thing. Uh, we're super grateful to Kin and all of the Kin staff for allowing us to do this event here. Um, if you want to keep up to date with everything else they're doing for the rest of the year, you can see that at kinboise.com. And we want to thank the Treefort Music Fest for helping us put this together. Uh, clap for Treefort and Duck Club. This is a, it's kind of a power trip thing, I think, getting people to clap. I, I really like it. Uh, and I want to say a quick thank you to all of our readers tonight and to Sunblood Stories for being here. Uh, and a huge thank you to all of you, again, for being here. Clap for yourselves. Clap for the readers. 
Uh, one quick plug, uh, we do have a podcast, the Story Fort podcast. Uh, goes up most Mondays every week, anywhere you find podcasts. And ideally, if I didn't break the recording thingy, you will be able to listen to this event tonight uh, on our podcast. So our first uh, readers of the night, we have two coming up, is Kay Lang. Kay Lang is a writer, teacher, and UFO seeker from Boise, Idaho. Their work has appeared on stages across the nation, including the Treefort Music Festival, Helicon West, Ghosts and Projectors, and the National Poetry Slam. Their work can also be found in publications such as Sink Hollow, Ellipses, and Ink and Nebula, in addition to their self-published collections, Moonache, Sugar Becoming, and Weird Grief. They can be found wherever the gin is cheapest. And also, we will have Emily Ruth Herbster, who is a Boise-dwelling performance poet created by the collision of several cosmic bodies. She is fueled by Red Bull, eyeliner, and cigarettes. She's kind of tough, but mostly soft, just like her writing. And to all things trashy and weird, and probably into you. She can be spotted at local slams, opening at basement punk shows, or dumpster diving behind your nearest pizza place. Let's give a hand for our poets. We're so far away from each other. This is oh. nice. Yes. Um, hello, I'm Kay. This is Emily. Hi, guys. Um, tonight we are going to do this is like a test run for a podcast that we've had in mind for a hot minute. Like our bio said, ordinarily we're doing poetry stuff. But tonight we're really excited to talk about true crime and how it meets astrology. So I am a very amateur astrologer, and Emily's a true crime expert in yeah, a way. I'm going to go ahead and say very amateur as well. <laughs> but So um, yeah, do you want to introduce what we're talking about tonight? Yeah, okay. So, uh, so what do Norman Bates, Buffalo Bill, and Leatherface all have in common? Their source of inspiration all came from a shy mother's boy and local oddball turned evil with the curiosity of things he was never allowed to know. Do you want to introduce and who that is? We are going to talk. About you introduce it. Oh, okay. First, okay. So the person who inspired all of those characters in your favorite classic horror movies would be Ed Gein. Ed Gein, and I'm so excited because we get to look at this crazy man, and we are going to look at it through the lens of astrology. Raise your hand, my friends, if you have, uh, if you're an astrologer. Do you look at your chart? Do you know your sign? Daily oh, we got we got forest okay, over okay. here. Okay. Yes, this is good. So a brief introduction to astrology. A lot of times there's like the classic pickup line that's like, what's your sign, baby? And you're like, I'm an Aquaman, like <laughs> whatever you say. So there is a chart that you can develop out of all of this. And it's based on planetary alignments. And these planetary alignments come from the date the time and the place of your birth. And they are great predictors for the way that our whole lives are going to happen. So what we're going to do today is we're going to talk a little bit about Ed Gein, and um, I'm going to give you some astrological insight into what we can expect from these crimes. So if you want to start us out, okay. where are we beginning? So we're going to start in the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin, La Crosse, Wisconsin, on August 27th, 1906. Specifically at 11.30 p.m., which is important because that tells us where our rising sign is. But we're not going to talk about the rising sign first. I want we'll to talk about... What? I said we'll get to it. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. But I want to talk about Pluto, that half planet of ours. This is a planet that on your astrological chart represents a generational understanding, your understanding of the death and rebirth of ideas within your generation. So for Ed Gein, we begin in a, in, in a generation 
of profound technological breakthroughs, right? We are at the turn of the 20th century. This is 1906. He's coming at the very beginning of the 1900s. So we're seeing the telephone, the automobile, airplanes, all of these massive transitions within society. Um, and we see ways that this transition defines his life later. Ed Gein was born to a severely alcoholic father named George and his mother, Augusta, who was, um, thank you, who was uh, a religious fanatic. Um, kind of think like a televangelist before TV. Um, so believe that women were inherently um, harlots and whores and um, sex before marriage was the wildest of sins. And, which it is. Which it is. <laughs> Um, and even uh, sex for not reproductive purposes was uh, the worst thing you could do. Um, and she really instilled that kind of thing into her children, which would be Ed and his older brother, Henry, um, who we will talk about in more detail a little bit later. Um, so that is like his, his foundation for who he is. Uh, and then in around, at around 1915, uh, they moved to a farm in Plainfield, Wisconsin, which is also the middle of nowhere, Midwest. Right. So at this point, we're thinking, we're going to think about his planet, Neptune. So the planet Neptune is a planet that uh, tells us where our generational ideals are. So not just what's going to happen and where we see the death and rebirth cycle within our generation, but what we value and what's important to us. So Ed comes from a cancer generation, which means that for him, his entire generation has this over-idealization of the home and the past and these traditional values. So in part, this is like, oh, we want to return to traditionalism, but also in part, this is a way that this generation has this sense of isolationism and protectionism. We see that in politics at this time. Um, we also see, and later on we'll see this too with Ed specifically, but this kind of far-fetched supremacy ideals come in, whether that's like racial supremacy or like um, national supremacy. Or religious. Um, or religious supremacy. Um, so this is uh, really important in knowing like his family and his background and the way he was raised. Um, so he is in the same way, like, very tied to the home, um, like Kate was saying. Um, so because he lived on a farm and because he lived in a small town, um, friends were not easy for him. Um, and growing up, he really didn't have any. Um, the, the kids he went to school with teased him because he was, like, uncomfortable. Uh, he only knew how to conversate with his mother very strictly his mother um, and his family. Um, and then on top of not being good at making friends, he left school after eighth grade. So at like 13, 14, that is the last of like the social outreach that he has in those very shaping years. Um, and also I feel like if you are going to not be this guy's friend, like kudos to you. You were not best pals with the serial killer. Yeah. You good. made the right move. Sorry yeah. for Ed. Like it probably well, would have made it better for him, but although those kids teased him, so like yeah. we're not we're not helping. We the can tell already that I have a flimsy moral compass. Let's go. <laughs> okay. So um so his really his only friends were his mother and his older brother. Um which we have already discussed um, how his mother was and how she treated um, 
just everyone but her children. Um, and even in them, uh, she she really instilled um, the the fear of sin um, pretty heavily in them. Um, so she forced her way into being the most influential part of Ed's life. Um, and later, she would be the biggest influence on his pro his victim profile. Um, so that is that era of him growing up and a good look at that. Um, and then we're going to skip forward a little bit to 1940 where his father dies of um, his alcoholism, essentially. Okay. So he's had this like really tumultuous childhood, right? Where like he has no friends, his mom is freaking crazy, um, and then his dad is a piece of garbage. Um, and all of this, I think, for any of us would lead to a whole like perception that everything is wildly out of control. Um, this also is told in the stars by his planet Saturn, which is the planet in our charts that helps us understand the structure and the law and the like, the everyday regulation of how the world works all around us. And his is in Pisces, and I myself am a Pisces, which makes me mostly feel just like Ed did, like life is constantly spinning out of control. <laughs> um, and he has this deep and unreasonable fear likely connected with, and people who have their um, Pisces and Saturn have often end up experiencing really traumatic events surrounding like losing a father or a loved one. Um, and that creates them, that causes them to develop really unrealistic expectations of what these guide figures need to provide for them in their lives. Cool, okay. Um, so not too long after his father died, his brother branched out of uh, this very, very small social circle um, and he met a woman um, and this woman showed him that everything his mother had taught him about women in general was not correct. Um, and he, he begins courting this woman, um, and in the process he is also explaining to Ed, like, hey, I think she might be wrong, and Mom, I think she's crazy, dude. Yeah, yeah. So he's like, hey, we should, like, get out of there. Um, and Ed does not take kindly to this because he holds his mother in such an important light. Um, so in 1944, uh, him and his brother were burning brush on the farm that they lived on. Um, and at some point, the brush got out of control and there was a bit of a fire. Um, and Ed claims that during this fire, he lost his brother. Couldn't just, find him anywhere. I just don't know where, where yeah. he would go. He's like, just this opportunity to yeah. so, burn so alive. He, he quote unquote lost his brother. Um, he ran into town, grabbed the police, and he took the police directly to his brother's body. Um, the police never really investigated this. Uh, they were just like, must have been an accident with the fire. Um, but it is now believed that this is Ed's very first kill. Ed's brother dead in a fire in my town? It's more likely than you think. It is more likely than you think. Mm -hmm. um, so after this, uh, so that is in 1944, um, a lot of people theorize that Ed did this because his brother started to turn on their mother, um, and he decided, "You don't get any of the attention, uh, any of the attention from her anymore. Um, I'm going to take the rest of that." So he just took him out of the equation. Um, and then, not too long after this, um, Ed's mother is getting fairly old. Um, and granted, okay, just so we're all on the same page here, um, this is Ed bordering on his mid to late 30s. So he is still living with his mother. That is his only uh, social outlet here. Um, so at some point, his mother uh, has a stroke and she's hospitalized. Um, so he 
is with her the whole time, holding her hand, making sure she's okay. Uh, and but she tell them why she had the stroke. Oh, we're getting to that. Okay. So that's her second stroke. So her first stroke, she recovers from fairly well, and Ed is like helping take care of her. Um, and they're running some errands on the farm, um, and they need to borrow a tool from the neighbor. So they go to the neighbor's house. The neighbor is outside with his new puppy. Um, the dog does something he doesn't like, so he starts beating the dog. This man's girlfriend comes out uh, and yells at him for abusing this dog. And Ed's mother realizes that her neighbor is living with a woman that he is not married to. Um, and she loses it, um, goes absolutely apeshit, uh, and ends up having another stroke, and this is the stroke that kills her. And she dies because all of these deeply ingrained ideals, she just can't let them go. And then Ed sees this too and sees the way that, like, all of what his mother said was true. And because she witnessed it, now she's dead. And one of the most important things we know about Ed Gein's chart is that in his, uh, his Jupiter, which is in Cancer, which is a deeply emotional planet, but Jupiter is the way that you socially communicate. And it's where you under, it's where you derive like the way that you grow as a person. And this was an incredibly impactful experience for him because um, his greatest need having a Jupiter in Cancer is for emotional security. So without his mother, he now has lost his father, he's lost his brother, which he did on purpose, I would say, and he's lost his mother, which means that he has nothing left like this is the end for ed and his emotional security which is one of the greatest things that he craves and the mm -hmm. only outlook he has for the world is rooted in these ideals from these people in his life yeah so this is uh this is what sparks essentially his spiral is the death of his mother um because now he has no one else um so at this point he's still living in the same farmhouse that he grew up in since 1915 um he is the only one living there um and he does this thing where he boards up his mother's room. Um, so he completely blocks it off from the rest of the house and he never goes in it again and it is never touched again. Um, so later when we get into um, the crime scene and the brutality of it, um, keep in mind that none of this was in his mother's room. His mother's room was exactly how she left it when she died. Um, so he he's still living in this farmhouse um, and he is running the farm the best he can by himself and on the side he tries to make money doing like local handiwork um and surprisingly he is the number one go-to babysitter in town which so, is the worst fact about him. yeah okay it's not so, the worst we're gonna get there <laughs> yeah we're gonna get to the worst but um no one knew him as like a dangerous person. He was just kind of a weird guy who had like the social abilities of essentially a child, which is why he did so well with children. Um, yeah. And so I want to also introduce, this is where that idea of the sun sign comes in. Your sun sign is the main one that you probably know if you like know what your astrological sign is. Like I said, I'm a Pisces. Emily's a Virgo, and Emily being a Virgo is really significant because Ed Gein was also a Virgo. Also a Virgo. Actually, most serial killers are Pisces or Virgos. So, yes. like, any of y'all out there born in, like, late August or, like, early March is a toss-up for you. Like, you might make a different choice, but yeah. you might eventually make serial killer choice. I hope Let's not. hope things go well for you so you don't have to go down that path. Yeah, yeah. Seek therapy. Yeah. Um, so, um, him being a Virgo, one thing that I know about Virgos and the thing that I love the most about my Virgo friends is that they are like meticulous analytical people. 
Virgos are all about having a plan. If you wanted to know, we have like our notes for tonight. Um, it's just various charts that we have established. That's like Virgo-ass living. Um, and so they're also incredibly precise and usually super good with some kind of like handiwork or tools. So what surprises me is this fact that while he's living in this house and the room is worded up, he's like trashing the place. Yes, um, so my favorite fact about Virgos is that um, people assume that we are like very neat, very organized and anal people. It's not necessarily true. Most Virgos will function in the most organized chaos you've ever seen. Um, and Ed was very much this way. Um, so the house that he's living in, except for his mother's room, Augusta, um, becomes completely disheveled. Um, and he spends all of his free time reading anatomy books uh, and books on Nazi science experiments. So he gets super into um, essentially eugenics. Um, and it's it's pretty rough and it, it, it kind of aids in uh, what we find later uh, with his victims. Um, so around this time, um, after his mother's death and whatnot, um, he starts to spiral, um, and this is the time that he gets into uh, grave digging. I love also that there's like this like hard line where it's like, oh yeah, local babysitter Ed, like we love that guy. Also, grave digger. Yeah. Like, illegal grave digger nonetheless. Yeah, so he would... Um, read the obituar obituaries, uh, wait for the, um, the column to come out, uh, see who seemed most interesting, uh, or like who fit his needs. Um, and the day they were buried, he would go and dig them up in the middle of the night. Um, the thing is he never, the, he never took whole bodies. Um, he would just take pieces of them. Um, and he, almost had uh, like a respect for these dead bodies that he was digging up. That he was digging up. Um, he like never took their jewelry. He was very careful with them. Um, very meticulous. That's going to be that Virgo energy. Yes. Um, so I want to talk about now that we have like this last little bit. Let's really get to what all of these signs come together to mean. Like I mentioned, most serial killers are Virgos. Some are Pisces. And then you have like your occasional Gemini, which like any Gemini I've ever dated. I was like, oh, so I'm going to die here. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, no offense to all y'all Geminis, <laughs> but um, get it together. Um, so I want to start talking about, so he's he's grave digging, mm -hmm. and he's like weird about it. He's meticulous yes. about it. Yes. Um, we don't find out what he does until much, much later. Yes. With this. Um, so when does he start to get caught? Okay. So um, he spends a lot of time like making things out of uh, and we'll get to like the kinds of things that he made um, with the things that he is stealing. Um, but so there, the thing that gets him caught uh, is something that he has done before and did not get caught for until um, he was caught for the later crime. Um, so the one that got him caught would be the uh, the murder of Bernice Warden. Um, so in 1957, uh, this woman goes missing. Um, she is a local shop owner. She's like well known in town. Um, and on the first day of deer hunting season, uh, Ed knows that her whole family is not going to be around and it's just going to be her in the shop. Um, so he goes into the shop where she's working by herself, um, asked to buy some antifreeze. Um, she writes out a receipt for him. And while she has her back turned writing this receipt, he shoots her point blank. Um, and then he takes her body back to his home to create things, which we will talk about here in a minute. 
Um, what were some characteristics of Bernice Warden? What okay, was she so like? Bernice Warden um, physically had a lot of the same characteristics as Augusta, Ed's mother. Um, she is a larger woman. She is very brute. She is very like set in her ways. Um, and Ed notices this. Ed notices how much she resembles his mother, both physically and in personality, um, which is what makes her um, so enticing to him. And he also had this previous experience, right, with mm-hmm. Mary Hogan, who worked at a tavern. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was like a grumpy sailor tavern woman, which is yes. like all I could ever hope to be. How do I get to that level? Um, and in the, in the same way as um, Bernice, she very physically resembles Ed's mother, um, and she is his other victim from a couple years previous. He didn't get caught for it until after he was caught for Bernice. And it, it, recall, it makes me recall what you said at the beginning, right? Like, so many horror movie tropes are based on, like, the conglomeration of these crimes. And it makes me really think, every time we've talked about this in prepping for this, um, it makes me think of a scene in Silence of the Lambs where uh, the girl's getting, like, picked up by Buck Skindle, featured mm-hmm. on um, Emily's fantastic shirt today. Um, but then, like, doesn't he ask her? He's like, what are you, like, size 10, 12? And literally, yes. like, size 10, 12 me is over here, like... No, I'm a four. Like, I would never be a skin suit. <laughs> okay, so uh, that's actually really a nice segue. Um, so the reason that he is looking for women who resemble his mother, both in size and in personality, is because essentially he is working on creating um, a recreation of his mother. Um, so very like Frankenstein-esque feeling, um, very Buffalo Bill. Um, he is using all of these body parts uh, from either grave digging or his two victims um, to create something that he can wear, um, either to feel closer to his mother or to liter- literally be her. So let's talk about my favorite of these items. Like, I know that you mentioned to me there were, like, skull bowls. Yes. Which is, like, kind of heavy metal. So, like, right. I, I mean, I don't know. But, like... When you think about the worst one, let's talk about that because we only have a couple okay. more minutes. Um, so um, my, my two favorite things that Ed created, both uh, with his grave robbing and um, with his actual kills. Um, my number one favorite is the nipple belt, um, which is exactly what you think it is. Uh, they found a belt in his house that was just made of nipples. And like I had one Various. made of bottle caps, but like that's okay. Like yeah. not now, maybe yeah. fashion wise. Like, but like same concept. Morally. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then my other favorite thing that he um, created for himself was a vest um, made of skin, uh, breasts and all. So if he wore it, it was like they were in the right it's place like, anatomically. He could just be Dolly Parton if yes. necessary. Yeah. Right? Like, great Halloween costume for anyone. Yeah. Um, and that was his goal. Yeah. So he makes these crazy, incredible, horrible things mm-hmm. using so much of that meticulous craftsman energy that he has. All of the, the handiwork that he'd been doing. Um, he puts that work instead of, like, he could have made rocking chairs. Yes. Like, beautiful rocking chairs. And or, instead he was like... Nipple belt. Yeah. Yes. He he used the deer hunting skills that he learned from growing up in this rural place um, for the wrong reasons. He used those techniques on real life people. Yes. So he gets caught basically immediately after he shoots the woman in the yes. store. Um, he is caught because he did not take the receipt with him that she wrote out. Um, so 
the only piece of evidence other than like her blood is a receipt with his name on it. So all the evidence is there. What ends up happening? Um, so he is not home, um, but the police go to his house and find um, all of these horrible things that we've been talking about. So like um, bowls made out of skulls, um, lampshades made of skin. Um, there is a curtain that the police walk past over and over again, not realizing it that it is human skin that they are pushing aside every the time they walk by. So talented. Um, he is found at his only friend's house, who is a 13-year-old boy, because that's the only kind of person that he knew how to be friends with. Um, he was found there um, and was arrested and admitted to everything in full. Um, did not deny anything. Um, was like, yep, that was me. I did it. Right. And so that's, I also think, like, the worst part of being a serial killer is, like, sometimes when they're sneaky about it and they, like, want the notoriety, that's one thing. But when you're like, oh, that nipple belt, you like it? Yeah, that's yeah. from the fall 2011 collection. Yeah. Like, that's great. Um, so anyway, he ends up, he gets caught. It's yep. like, he fully confesses. So... He originally is committed to state hospital on a yes. plea of insanity. Yes. So he is found, um, what is the term? Unfit um, for trial. Yes. Yeah, he is yeah. deemed unfit for trial. Um, they're like, he's crazy. Um, he genuinely had no like moral compass here. He did not know the difference between right and wrong and digging up bodies as being wrong. Which is like very funny to me because then later... In 1968, they're like, well, actually, if you have the wherewithal to make a titty vest, yeah, like you, you probably know you what know you're a doing. couple things, like yeah. a few things. Yeah. So he ends up, he, but does he? He still, because he was insane at the time of the mm -hmm. murder, he ends up back in the hospital. Yes. What is he still roaming the earth a hundred years, more than hundred years later? No, unfortunately. Um, he, he did have a lot to say um, while he was in the hospital, so that's where we got a, where we got a lot of our information about him. Um, but in 1984, uh, he died of um, various cancers and, and whatnot. Uh, he was also just very old um, mm -hmm. and yes. very unwell. So I guess my final takeaway for this is that you should all absolutely get out there, do your astrological mm -hmm. charts, so you can make a qualified risk assessment on to what extent you or your partner may be a serial killer. Because I also exclusively date Virgos. And as a Pisces, I'm hoping for some cool Bonnie and Clyde action or something yeah. in the or future. you will be given a skin suit for your birthday. Happy birthday, everyone. And happy Halloween. Thanks for letting happy us Halloween, tell you about guys. it again. Kay and Emily, everyone, give them another round of applause. And Sunblood stories in the corner there making very creepy, amazing sounds. Thank you, Sunblood. Our next reader of the evening is Malia Collins. Malia Collins is a native Hawaiian writer and assistant professor of English and creative writing at the College of Western Idaho and also one of the best professors I've ever had, personally, as an English major. Although she's lived in Boise, Idaho for 20 years, her writing is still rooted in the place and culture of Hawaii, and she uses Hawaiian cultural practices, stories, 
beliefs, and the natural world to explore themes like love, family, connection, desire, belonging, and grief. She is also the current Idaho writer in residence. Give Malia Collins a hand, everybody. Hi, everybody. Hello, nice to see you all out there. Joe, thanks for the introduction. Welcome. Thanks to Ken and to StoryForward and TreeForward and Christian for putting this together. I went to college in Wisconsin. I'm from Hawaii, but I went to college in Wisconsin. And I heard about Ed Gein, and I went to the library to research more about him. And all of the books and the pages on Ed Gein were ripped out or missing. And I thought, oh my god, someone here on campus is going to turn me into a lampshade. But they didn't, so thank you. Um, I write about Hawaii, and I write creative nonfiction, and I want to tell you a story about a house um, that I lived in in Hawaii as a child, and this is called The Stone House. In 1976, the year I was five and my brother Jay seven, my parents rented a house in Honolulu, a single-story lava rock and shingle bungalow near the University of Hawaii at Manoa. A metal plaque below the house number read, The Stone House, built 1922. Tom and Judy Bowles, who lived there before my parents, said there were nights when they could hear what sounded like a young girl chanting in the low branches of the banyan tree in the front yard. The couple next door warned my parents the house was in the path of the night marchers, the spirits of ancient Hawaiian warriors. And then there were the stones themselves, said to have been part of a heiau, a temple destroyed in the late 1850s. The stories about the house were nearly a deal breaker for my mother, who was deeply superstitious and carried enough ghosts of her own. But the location was prime and the rent cheap. The morning we moved in, my parents planted a row of green tea leaf plants around the perimeter of the house, a Hawaiian superstition to ward off evil and keep everyone in the house safe. Manoa is the valley of rainbows and also of wind. When the wind blew, it ripped seed pods from the branches of the banyan tree and scattered them in the yard. Each one was the shape and heft of a perfect child-sized ear. Our first night in the house, my brother hid one under my pillow, and most days I found one somewhere else, on the sink, next to my plate at dinner floating in the bathtub. My father said it was living at the stone house when he understood that my brother Jay was a bad seed. In my memory, I can hear the stone house before I see it. My mother played Hawaiian records that skipped in the same spot every time. Jay said what lived in the tree told him to come closer. Once he looked up and saw a long gray tail like a lizard's, curled around the trunk. After a rain, the yard bubbled with the smell of gardenias, thick as an old woman's perfume. Something inside Jay grew darker. I learned ghosts find home in whomever calls to them most clearly. 
The banyan tree in the front yard was nearly 100 years old, its aerial roots strong enough to swing from. Some of the roots burrowed into the ground and formed arches we could walk through. Others formed small, hollow openings, like little wooden caves. I remember crawling into the middle of one and hearing a voice above me, like the echo of my own voice, but it was calling my name. Malia, it said, Malia. When Jay and I played outside, both of us could fit in one of the hollowed out spaces and we watched the neighborhood without anybody seeing us. Pokey, our dog at the time, was an old poi dog, a mutt from the pound, who slept in a wooden dog house underneath the banyan tree. We started bringing her into the space too. At first, she resisted. She stood at the opening and sniffed, but never went in by herself. I pulled her, or Jay pushed, and we muscled her in that way. Hawaiians believe banyan trees are a waiting place for the dead, and Manoa was filled with them. Two of the biggest banyan trees were a straight shot up from our house. One nearly double in size stood at the top of the drive at the Manoa Chinese Cemetery. The center of it completely burned out. Just below where the banyan tree stood were the children's graves. When the winds were right, people said they could hear children laughing. Because the veil is thin in Manoa Valley, my mother told us the opening in the middle of the banyan tree was a doorway from this world into another. My brother said when kids walked through, they disappeared. A mile up from the Chinese cemetery, at the trailhead to Manoa Falls, was another banyan tree, rumored to be a stop on the night marcher's procession. In the backyard of the stone house, propped up against one of the poles holding up the clothesline, was a tiki the bulls brought back from a research trip to Tahiti and Rapa Nui. The tiki was the height of a child, opaque abalone shell eyes, a body not made of wood, but some sort of dried thatching. When the bulls left, they wouldn't take the tiki, but asked my parents to hold on to it in case they ever decided they wanted it back. My mother hung the laundry at night, I suspect, so no one could see how shabby our clothes were, and Jay and I tagged along to keep watch. If he thought no one was looking, Jay liked to stick his fingers into the tiki's eye sockets and loosen the thread holding the shell eyes to the carved out spaces beneath them. One night we were helping her with the clothes and I heard my mother say, take your sister inside. Instead of walking towards the house, he spun me so I was facing the tiki and I watched as one of the shell eyes slid from the eye socket to its mouth and hang there. It was during the last four Hawaiian moon phases, just before the sky goes completely dark, when, it was believed, the night marchers rose up from the ocean to march along the same paths they marched on their way to or back from battle. They dressed in feather capes, carried spears and clubs, and the bellow of conch shells blowing marked the start of the procession, and the pahu, or drums, marked where it ended. 
One of the paths they marched started in Waikiki, wove up through Manoa Valley, past the children's section of the Chinese cemetery, down the middle of the burned out banyan tree, before disappearing into the mist at the edge of Wa'ahila Ridge. The nights with no moon were the only nights I remember my mother locking the windows. My brother and I shared the bedroom off the living room and facing the front yard was a double hung wood window. The windows throughout the house were old and heavy and to keep the lower sashes up, my parents lodged broom handles cut in two and propped them between the sash and the sill. If the broom handle was removed, the lower sash crashed into the sill, heavy and fast as a guillotine. Since the air on Manoa was always cool, we usually left the windows open. Our bunk beds were pushed up against the wall, our feet facing the door, never the window. If our feet were facing the windows, the spirits could carry us away while we slept. I was on the bottom bunk, my parents' bedroom across the hall. Sometimes, if I woke while it was still dark, I'd see Jay looking out the window. One night I woke up, and he was standing next to my bed, staring like he could see the me on the bed, but also a me further underneath it. He tapped against the window glass, the leaves on the banyan tree fluttering like someone waving. Look, he said, she's asking me your name. Pokey was the one who saw them first. That night she woke us up with her howling, and Jay rolled over in bed, his face wet, his arms covered in chicken skin. Someone's in the tree, he said, with his back toward the window. A sudden breeze blew through the room, not cool like the trade winds that usually blew through Manoa, but hot. Jay's cheeks blazed. He smiled at me, and the way the streetlights shadowed across the room, it looked like the bottom row of teeth were blazing too. The wind smelled like something sweet was burning. Pokey kept barking, even when my dad went outside to calm her down, her body heaving, scratching at the tree, trying to jump over the wall between where the yard ended and the sidewalk began. He was holding on to her when he heard the drumming far up in the valley, so faint he didn't know if it was real or if he was dreaming it. We were all in the front yard by then, too scared to stay inside by ourselves, scared for Pokey and for us too. Jay heard the conch shell, I heard the drums. My mother pointed up into the mountains to a line of floating bright orange flames. We watched until they disappeared over the edge. Pokey collapsed next to my father's legs, whimpering. It is said dogs could hear the night marchers before the humans did, and would sometimes run in formation with the procession of spirits. And that's what my father said she looked like when he saw her outside, like she was trying to run after something, making small jumps into the air like she was nipping at someone's feet, but those feet weren't touching the ground. One night, when my dad was out, the rain started from back in the valley, and by the time they hit our house, we couldn't hear anything but the pounding of water against the roof. 
My mother ran from room to room, closing the windows. My brother behind her, watching, his body jumping slightly when she didn't catch the window sash quickly enough and it slammed down into the frame. With the windows closed and the rain pounding, no one heard Pokey outside, suddenly at high alert. We didn't know she was scared, spooked by the rain or something else higher up in the tree. And after that night, I'll spend much of my time imagining her outside, barking and running back and forth in front of the house. We will not hear her barking or frantically scratching deep grooves into the dirt with her paws. We will not see her standing in front of the opening to the hollow, peering at something inside it, and then her body disappearing into the dark like someone pulled her in. When my father came home that night and called for Pokey the way he always did, instead of bounding from the doghouse to greet him at the front gate, he found her in the middle of one of the small openings where Jay and I liked to hide. He knew she was dead, her eyes frozen in the direction of the branches overhead. He called my mother and said to leave the kids, but we ran out in front of her and I could smell the heat in the air, the mix of dog and blood and wet dirt. The space around the hollow was a mess of scratches and fallen branches, tufts of her fur and small pieces of wood tangled together. Jay cried while the rain fell in our hair and across Pokey's body. He tried to crawl in with her, but my father caught him by the waist and pulled him out. My father covered Pokey with towels, lifted her body, and set her on a blanket on the lanai between the wall so no one could see her. One of the neighbors helped my mother carry us inside. I don't want to make trouble, he said, but look at the doors. You can see all the way through the house. He pointed to the front door and drew a line with his finger straight to the back door. They lined up perfectly. They'll keep coming, he said. And he turned around and made a line between the front door and the banyan tree. Even the tree, he said, it's like you folks are in their way. Early the next morning, we buried her under the tree. After my father filled the hole and was smoothing the top with the back of the shovel, he hit something sticking out from the mud, shiny and thin in the shape of a fish scale. It was part of a shell. He tucked it into a crack in the rock wall. Pokey's doghouse sat empty for the rest of the time we lived there. When my father suggested getting rid of it, my mother told him never. How would she find us if we gave her house away? After Pokey died, my brother started spending most of the afternoon in and around the banyan tree or jumping from the lava rock wall to the spot where Pokey was buried. My mother walked out after a little while and told him to stop, that he was making the neighbors uncomfortable, and us too. From inside, I could see him out there, skinny in his blue corduroy pants and school uniform t-shirt. The next time the rain started, in an imitation of my mother, my brother and I ran through the house, closing the windows and doors. At the window in our room, the one that looked out over the front yard. Jay nodded towards the ledge and said, if you put your thumb here, 
I promise you can feel pokey in the ground. I could see her grave, the mud around it slicked with rivulets. I missed her so much and wondered how she would feel when I pet her fur. Jay smiled as he reached out for my hand and I felt the skin on the back of his hand buckle and then go smooth again. It's okay, he said. I laid my right thumb on the windowsill and held onto the trim with the rest of my fingers. The spray from the rain blew through the screen and I thought if I listened hard enough, I could hear the sound of Pokey barking. 10 seconds, 10 seconds passed, then 20. I pressed my thumb down as hard as I could. I felt something beating. Jay was right, I thought. I could feel her. She was so close. I was thinking of her smell and the way her body shook as she slept. When Jay pulled the broom handle free and the window crashed down, nearly cutting my thumb in two. My screaming and my mother's screaming started at the same moment. She picked me up, wrapped my thumb tight against my hand with a washcloth, and part carried and mostly dragged me out to the car. My father was already in the front seat with the engine running, trying to reach over the back seat to grab Jay, but he inched away like it was some game. He sped down University Avenue to the emergency room at Queens Hospital where they reattached my thumb. My parents scared and pissed off both. And I remember when the nurse slipped behind Jay to grab some gauze, he said to her, we always get the good rooms. You can see the ocean from this one. He didn't cry when he saw the bandages and he didn't cry when the bandages came off. And the only thing keeping my thumb together was a crooked ladder of tight black stitches. You did this, my father said. And as my mother shot him a look that said we didn't need the doctor to know our business, Jay shrugged and he walked out of the room. That night, when the throbbing started, I woke with a fever and a tightness in my skin. A thin red line, hot enough to feel like it was glowing, curved across my palm, up my arm, over my chest, to just below my heart. In the corner across the room, Jay stood, his right hand high in the air, as if someone very tall was holding it. He didn't move or make a sound, not even when I called out for help. I waited for the door to open. I closed my eyes because I must have been dreaming, and in that second, Jay stepped closer, his eyes flat and wide as shells. We lasted in the stone house for a year. The last morning, my parents packed the car, and my brother and I sat quiet in the back seat while we drove over the Pully Highway to our new house on the windward side of the island. The only thing we brought with us from the stone house was Tom and Judy Bull's tiki. My mother couldn't leave it, she said, in case they ever wanted it back. The tiki was packed in the trunk next to the suitcases and the doghouse. I thought I could hear its eyes rattling as we rounded the hairpin turn 
just before the intersection and turn off down Aoloa Road into our new neighborhood. My parents vowed never to live on the town side of the island again. Years later, my husband's sister will fall in love with someone from Hawaii too. And one night, as we're sitting around after dinner telling stories about home, the boyfriend, D, will describe the house he grew up in in Manoa, the lava rock wall, the old wooden windows. He'll describe standing in the middle of the banyan tree roots, the stink of the rotting seed pods. And he'll tell the story of a rainy night and how their dog, a mutt from the pound just like ours, will get spooked from the rain, they thought, or maybe something else. Before he says it, I know he's going to say they were in the house and their dog was outside, but the rain was so loud they couldn't hear her. He says their dog died that night and they found her curled on her side. I imagined in the same shape Pokey made, partially covered in thin branches, looking up into the sky. He said the scratch marks around the tree looked bigger than ones a dog would make. Wild boars, he said, who knows? But the smell in the air, I remember that. Even with all the rain, something outside was burning. Last week, I fell asleep in the middle of the afternoon. In my dream, someone leaned down to whisper in my ear. Their face was gray, and where their ears should have been were seed pods, like the ones on the banyan tree at our house in Manoa. In my dream, a mouth pressed hard against my cheek and blew. I woke up gasping. The room went cold when I felt a hand clutch the back of my neck, hard and frozen. Malia, I heard my brother's voice say, a tapping against the outside window. She's asking me your name. Thank you. Thank you, Malia. Everyone give Malia Collins another hand. How's everybody doing out there? You having a good Halloween? It's a delicious Halloween. I finally got to tuck into the meal from Ken. Oh my goodness. Very tasty. Uh, while Forrest goes ahead and uh, disinfects that mic there, um, I will go ahead and introduce our next speaker for the evening. And it is an honor for me to be able to introduce Dr. Marlene Trump, the seventh president of Boise State University. She is committed to supporting students and faculty serving and advancing the state of Idaho, and helping the university foster research excellence to increase discovery for its students and the world. Before joining Boise State in July of 2019, Dr. Trump was the campus provost and executive vice chancellor at the University of California at Santa Cruz, ranked by US News as the premier public university system in the country. Dr. Trump was the Dean of Arizona State University's new Interdisciplinary College of Arts and Sciences and the Vice Provost of the university's West Campus. She grew up in Green River, Wyoming, 
a Trona mining town along Interstate 80 that saw its population jump threefold in the 1970s when nearby mines led an economic boom. Her father worked at one of the mines, and neither of her parents were college graduates, but they supported their two daughters' college aspirations, especially when Trump decided she was going to become a doctor. She earned scholarships to Creighton University, nearly 800 miles away in Omaha, Nebraska, but the financial challenges remained tangible. Though bound for medical school, she fell in love with Robert Browning's poetry. Instead, she would go on to earn her bachelor's degree in English, come home to Wyoming to complete a master's degree, and then study for her doctorate at the University of Florida. There, she wrote a dissertation on Victorian novels and the new laws being written then on domestic violence. Can I get a big round of applause for Dr. Marlene Trump, please? Happy Halloween. All right, I have to give you a warning. Um, there are some graphic details in these stories. <laughs> um, I have two stories to tell you, but first I want to thank Story Ford and Christian, Joe, and also Remy for dinner tonight. Martha met John when the two were fellow servants on a farm. Maybe I should say I'm a Victorianist, and I'm writing a book right now on murder cases from the 19th century and the parallels of these 19th century murder cases to today. Martha met John when they were fellow servants on a farm. He was only 19, and she was 40. There were stories, particularly given their age difference, that she had paid him 50 pounds to entice him into the marriage. As a carrier, which is like a Victorian truck driver, he frequently traveled, and his absence gave this younger man ample opportunity to court other women. Though they had been married for five years, and Martha, it seemed, was a faithful wife, the same could not be said for John. She had already had the unpleasant experience of discovering him in an amorous encounter with Mary Davis, another local woman. On his last day in the world, John had put in a long day's work. Along with his fellow workmen, he'd been transporting goods with his horse and cart in a neighboring community until about four o'clock in the afternoon. As the two traveled homeward, they encountered the sometime object of John's affection, Mary's, Mary Davis. They traveled in her country, in her company, stopping at a public house to play Skittles and drink until midnight. About two hours later, a neighbor heard him a neighbor heard him pass by her house on his way home between 2 and 3 a.m. another neighbor heard screams silence for a few hours martha called upon her closest neighbor at 5 a.m. martha explained that john had been kicked by a horse at about 2 in the morning but had somehow managed to make his way home as a good wife she had helped him into the house. She wasn't able to go for help, however, because in his fear and suffering, John had clung fast to her for two hours. He had eventually weakened his grip enough that she could come away and get help. The medical experts and a fair number of sensible people had questions about her story. Though he had massive wounds on his head, John had no blood on his shirt suggesting that he had not been upright after the injury, nor was there any blood on her clothes or in the foyer, the hallway, or on the road.
which such an injury would have required. Instead, there was just blood in the spot where he lay when his body was examined. In the trial, Richard William Broster, a local surgeon, testified to the severity of the wounds. Here's the part you don't want to hear if, if you are bothered by gruesome details. John, he explained, had a wound, a wound over the right eyebrow, and the bones of his nose were broken. There was a grievous wound on the top of his head, a wound behind his ear, and the frontal and occipital portions of the skull were fractured, several pieces of his bone driven into his brain. The wounds, Broster felt, were made by a blunt instrument like the back of a hatchet, not a kick from a horse, as Martha had suggested. Broster argued that John couldn't have possibly walked or talked with such injuries, even with the assistance of his wife. The jury swiftly found Martha guilty, but the public was not at ease with her conviction or her death sentence. In the wake of the sentencing, Reverend de la Fosse pleaded with Martha to confess. Her response? The horse did not do it. John fell down the stairs. This was so obviously fallacious, an explanation for John's injuries, even to a person with no medical training, that it occasioned a public outcry. But again, amidst widespread discomfort. The Morning Chronicle called Martha horribly obdurate because she had added another lie to the many accounts she had given of this sad tragedy. Ultimately, however, Martha offered a final confession that shifted the terms by which she was understood. She described her life as one marred by his infidelity, violence, and cruelty. She as a forbearing sufferer who had always loved him. She claimed that on that fateful night, she had made him dinner, waited patiently for him to return home, but upon his arrival, he had ver verbally abused her and then literally kicked her chair out from under her and sent her clattering to the floor. Then he struck a severe blow on the side of her head, which confused her so much she was obliged to sit down. Finally, he horsewhipped her. She screamed and called out, if you strike me again, I shall cry murder. He retorted, if you do, I will knock your brains out through the window. I will find you dead in the morning. He then kicked her on the left side as she lay on the floor. In an ungovernable passion at being so abused and struck, she seized the hatchet and hit him. I had never struck him before with all his ill treatment, but when he hit me so hard at this time, I was almost out of my senses and hardly knew what I was doing. Her confession restored her femininity and her role in the domestic scene, preparing his meals, patiently waiting for him, in spite of his known philandering, suffering most of his abuse until it reached an extreme. His behavior in this context seemed to merit a defensive response. And one letter to the editor of the Times wrote, the wretched woman confessed her crime, but unfolded such a tale of ill treatment as has excited the sympathies of almost everyone. And there is a general feeling in the country that this wretched woman is being unjustly executed. The unfortunate slayer of her brutal husband pays the dreadful penalty of the law. Martha Brown is a murdered 
woman. Now, have any of you ever read Tess of the Dubervilles by Thomas Hardy? It's a rather famous 19th century novel, and Thomas Hardy's very dark. He's, he's a turn-of-the-century writer. The end of the novel, there's a depiction of Tess being hung, and he's watching, the narrator's watching her body sway. It was actually the hanging of Martha Brown that Thomas Hardy himself was recalling that he had seen as a young child. This is story number two. During the evening of October 24th, 1890, near Crossfield Road in Hampstead, Phoebe Hogg's brutalized body, her skull smashed, her head nearly severed from her torso, was discovered draped across a trash heap. They could find no trace of the murderer, nor any clue to his identity. The police were soon hot on the trail of a well-dressed man who in that locale had paid a cabbie a double fare to get him to the train station quickly. Of course, finding a corpse on the street was deeply unsettling. People wondered what kind of madman could have bludgeoned and sliced this woman to death. Some asserted that it must be Jack the Ripper because of the violence and character of the assault. Based on a description of the victim's clothing, because of course in the 19th century people had many fewer articles of clothing, and someone could actually be identified by their clothing. Based on a description of the victim's clothing in the papers and the unexplained absence of her sister-in-law, a deeply di distressed Clara Hogg presented herself at the police station with Mary Eleanor Piercy, a close family friend. The police took her to the mortuary to view the body. The head was so brutalized that they had to wash blood from poor Phoebe's obscured face to facilitate identification. Clara recognized her sister-in-law, but a distressed Piercy, who had nursed Phoebe through a long illness only a year prior, could not offer a positive identification of the body and kept trying to tug Clara from the room. Later, a clearly devastated Frank Hogg, Phoebe's husband, confirmed the identification. The police interviewed Frank. After all, domestic disputes sometimes lead to brutal murders. But he had been working at his furniture moving job in the company of several others at the time of the murder. Moreover, his shock and grief were plainly visible. Before long, other horrible discoveries were made. Phoebe and Frank Hogg's missing 18-month-old daughter, apparently smothered, was found tossed in some bushes. Nearby, the child's bassinet perambulator, saturated with blood, was located parked in an alley. A nut from the mechanism of the bassinet near the murdered woman's body suggested that both bodies had been folded into the carriage in order to transport them through the city streets. A woman pushing a pram through the streets of London would arouse little attention, even if that pram was laden with corpses. The last person Phoebe was known to have seen alive was Piercy, 
who had invited Phoebe and her daughter over for a visit. The police requested to see Phoebe's ro Percy's rooms, and she politely agreed. She whistled to herself in the parlor, softly chanting about exterminating mice in a sing-song voice. I've been busy killing mice. I've been busy killing mice. The police walked in horror through a kitchen virtually deluged in blood. The carpet, the walls, the rugs, and even the ceiling were bespattered. The kitchen windows were broken. They found knives and a poker stained with blood. Some of Piercy's clothing, fairly saturated with blood, was located in the wash house. The police asked Piercy to remove her gloves and found her hands to be covered with wounds. When they questioned her about her hands, she said, I've been busy killing mice in the kitchen. She also made a passing remark about a frightful nosebleed she had. Soon witnesses came forward who had heard windows breaking in her apartment and who had seen her pram outside of the door of her rooms, who had heard a baby crying, who was suddenly silenced, and who had seen Piercy pushing a very heavily laden pram whose contents were covered through the streets on the evening of the murder. In spite of the overwhelming circumstantial evidence pointing to Piercy as the perpetrator, the public was positively certain that someone else must be involved. Thomas Bond, a forensic lecturer at the Royal College of Surgeons, autopsied Phoebe's body and testified that, quote, the blow from the poker on the back of, her, of the head forced the skull fragments into the brain and must have been a blow of considerable violence. Great force had to have been used to nearly sever the head. The neck was cut clear through to the vertebrae. Worse, Phoebe's head was nearly severed from her body while she was unconscious but still alive. The papers uncomfortably dismissed the notion of a woman engaging in this level of physical violence and insisted that the police must agree. The Times reported the police cannot be satisfied that a woman of Piercy's build could have completely overpowered and subdued a person of the strength and vigor of Mrs. Hogg, who was above average height. To have severed the vertebrae so completely as it is parted would, in the opinion of those who saw the body of the deceased woman, have been almost impossible for a person of Mrs. Piercy's physical development. Although, like her supposed victim, taller than the average woman, Piercy is a nervous and fragile person. The general expectation is that in all probability, another important arrest will be made tonight or today. Even after discovering that Piercy was in possession of objects belonging to the victim and her husband, including the murdered woman's wedding ring, the public actively resisted the notion that Piercy could have acted alone. Calling the case a mystery instead of a murder, 
the headlines continued to assert a second person will be implicated, in spite of the police's insistence that there would be no other arrest. The Daily News was quite explicit about the discomfort surrounding the gender of the accused and the perpetration of such a violent crime. It is not easy to understand, they wrote, how the dreadful injuries inflicted on Mrs. Hogg could have possibly been inflicted by another woman. The imagined second party was always assumed to be male. He might well have been a seaman or a fireman on board some ship, a physically strong, rope-pulling, rowing, coal-shoveling, working-class man might have been able to assault another person's body in this way, but not a slender, anxious woman. At length, after almost four days of constant coverage across the UK, the Times regretfully reported that the police in Scotland Yard have come to the conclusion, somewhat reluctantly, after careful investigation, that they are not in the position to make any further arrests in connection with this horrible crime. Though she was on trial alone, Piercy had had a long relationship with Frank Hogg. Their letters reveal a passionate connection that began before and lasted long after his marriage. Frank had made the apparently painful and vexing decision to propose to Phoebe when she'd become pregnant and their daughter had been born five months after the wedding. This had not diminished Piercy's commitment to Frank, however. In the month of the marriage, Piercy wrote to Frank with these words, What can I do? I love you with all my heart, and I will love her because she belongs to you. Frank somehow managed to soldier on. He married his wife and he kept a key to Piercy's home, visiting her with some fair regularity. Perhaps both Piercy's patience with his arrangements and Frank's satisfaction with them were waning at the time of the murder. She had written to Frank, I think and I think till I get so dizzy I don't know what to do with myself. It was, if it was not for your love, dear, I do not know what I should really do. And I'm always afraid you will take your love away, for then I should give up with despair. That is the only thing I care for on this earth. I cannot live without it now. I have no right to it, but you gave it to me and I can't give it up. Dear Frank, don't think badly of me for writing this. Police were confident that Frank did not play a role in the murder, but the public's response to him compelled police protection. His life would have been in danger for the mob if it had not been for a police escort on the day of his wife's funeral. He was hissed and booed by the crowd when his funeral coach passed him, and at the graveyard when he entered his brother's home though the crowd was reverent when other family members passed by during the service. A staggering 150 police officers were engaged for the funeral, and there were furious outbursts and yells and execrations at Frank's appearance that, according to the papers, would have made the stoutest heart quail. While Frank Hogg was clearly unfaithful to his marriage, the vast majority of all adulterers would not have been subject to social anger and violence. In fact, there was a fair bit of cultural tolerance for such male infidelity, even if there might be reasons to find a man's behavior distasteful. The high level of rage and the attempted assaults on Frank Hogg must have had an additional provocation. It seems quite likely that while the police 
clearly dismissed the notion of additional participants in the murder event, the crowd and the public struggled to associate the violence of this crime with a woman, and they displaced their rage over the murder and their discomfort with the social implications of a woman perpetrator onto Frank Hogg. Though only Piercy would go to the gallows for the death of Phoebe Hogg and her daughter, the social venom was much more broadly spent. This was to abate the assault on gendered norms that such female violence implied. Indeed, it was not in spite of the brutality of the crime, but in large part because of it, that Piercy's death sentence occasioned an uproar. Women had been executed before, but perhaps none for such ferocious of murder of people perceived as such innocence. To convict and execute Piercy meant to acknowledge that women were indeed capable of brutal, bloody murder. Writing on murderesses, one newspaper noted, the woman is naturally strongly guided and influenced by the man. In England, the same reasoning excuses a married woman charged in the company of her husband. For Mary Eleanor Piercy, there was no such loophole. Her act of murder was a solo act, deliberately planned and carried out with savage determination. Applying the death penalty to a woman meant a woman had the power to engage in the acts that occasioned it and that could thus merit the same sentence. This struggle is not insignificant. It continues to impact our presentation of cases in court and their assessment by juries to this day. My team taught a class when I was at Arizona State with the forensic scientist who had done the forensic work on the Jody Arias case. You may remember that case um, from the early 2000s in Phoenix, Arizona, where a woman, a very, very petite, very attractive woman, brutally murdered her ex-boyfriend by shooting him a number of times when he was in his shower. Even though there were no other potential perpetrators for that crime, it was very difficult to get the public to believe that Jody Arias could possibly have been the perpetrator because it was such a brutal murder. In the Piercy case, the Manchester Times wrote, even those who strongly believe in the necessity for retaining a death penalty shrink from sending a woman to the gallows, not just because she is a woman, but because the very existence of her crime threatens to send the model of womanhood along to the gallows with her. Could a woman's hand wield a butcher knife to decapitate another adult, or a poker to crush another person's skull? Could she do so without the assistance of a man? The fact that she could, and that Brown and Piercy did rattle our perceptions of gender and of violence altogether. We don't want a Jill the Ripper. 
and will do tremendous mental gymnastics to avoid her. Though Piercy and Brown had proven their strength and brutality, Piercy was literally the only woman who was ever suggested as a Jack the Ripper suspect. The latter had bent away from this possibility in her last love letter to Frank Hogg, almost as if it were her own plea to restore the order for which the public seemed to long. Try and be strong, as strong as me, for a man should be stronger than a woman. Right then, everyone, that was Scary Fort. At least the storytelling portion was Sunboat Stories playing some great music behind the storytellers, and then they later came on to play a full awesome set that we're going to air sometime very soon. We want to thank Dr. Marlene Tromp, Kay Lang, Emily Herbster. We want to thank Malia Collins, and we want to thank Ken for hosting us. We can uh, find out more about what Ken does at kenboise.com, as well as what Treefort does at treefortmusic.com, where tickets for September of 2021 are now available. So check those out. Uh, take care. Be well. And come September 2021, we shall once again see you all. At the best. Tomorrow, but tomorrow never came.